And now turning with me for our sermon text this evening to 1 Kings chapter 4. First Kings chapter four. King Solomon was over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah the son of Zadok was the priest, Elihareth and Ahiah the sons of Shisha were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadak and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and the king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. And these were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim. Ben-Decker in Mekaz. Sha'albim Beth Shemesh and Elon Beth Hanan. Ben-Hesed in Arabot. To him belong Soka and all the land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab, and all Naphath-Dor. He had Tapha, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Ahilud, and Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Beth-Shean, that is beside Zarathon, below Jezreel, and from Beth-Shean to Abel-Meholah, as far as the other side of Jachmim. Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead, he had the villages of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. And he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo, in Mahanaim, Ahamaz in Naphtali. He had taken Basemoth, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Hushai, in Asher, in Bealot. Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua. And Issachar, Shimei, the son of Ella, and Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri, and the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank, and they were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms. From the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifshah to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. 
and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Haman, Kalkal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. I think it's a rather fascinating feature to consider the various ways the cultures look to the past to shape their present identity. Consider Athens in the 5th century during the so-called golden age of Pericles, that time where we see the birthplace of Athenian democracy and the flourishing of Athenian art and literature, of architecture and philosophy. We fast forward to the 17th century and we think of the golden age that England experienced under Queen Elizabeth. The great literary works that came during that era, particularly of the plays and works of Shakespeare, or the religious reforms that would transpire over the next 40 years, culminating in those events that led up to the Westminster Assembly, those ways and events that shape even the way we worship here in Gainesville, Florida in 2024. If you think of those landmark days and events that we have in this nation to celebrate and commemorate those moments in American history that shape our present identity as a community, as a people, and as a nation, be it the commemoration of the Pilgrim's First Thanksgiving or that grand declaration that secured the liberties of men in July of 1776. If you peruse your local bookstore's history section, you will find that the majority of books focus on periods like this. Why is that? I think it's that our imagination is consumed, and in some ways rightly so, with those particular periods where we see uh, uh, such a, a clear focus on what it means to be a people or a country or a nation. Everyone wants to read about D-Day in 1944. To be blunt, nobody wants to read about Detroit in 1984. I'm reading a book on D-Day right now. Why is that the case? It's because there are those particular moments that shape our lives. And of course, there are those moments that do not. 
moments in history that tap into a certain sense of longing, that perhaps there is, in fact, something more to this life. Every culture seems to look back on one period or another as its golden era, and Israel is no different. Here in our text before us this evening and continuing for the next several chapters, Israel enters its golden age under the reign of Solomon. Everything thus far in salvation history has built up to this particular moment. And we will find that so much of the prophetic imagery that spills out beyond this time period will continue looking back to Solomon's reign, using Solomon's reign as a lens and a picture to anticipate that great day to come when the kingdom of Christ will, in fact, be consummated. Here we find Israel at its apex, a period of security, of peace, and prosperity where the king rests with peace all around him, his enemies subdued, the nations flocking to submit to his reign and to heed the wisdom from him who is most wise. Tonight we find that Israel stands at an apex, though that apex will not last forever. But when we come to the events of chapters 10 and 11, Humpty Dumpty will indeed have that great fall. And over the next few chapters, we will see the cracks in the foundation that lead to Solomon's tragic downfall. But tonight, we are given a picture of Solomon's reign and all of its pristine beauty and glory. And it kindles in us a sense of longing for Solomon's greater son, The reign that he has, the reign that begins with his ascension into heaven and is consummated on the day of his return. Here, the portrayal of the kingdom is intended to transform our moral imagination and to burn in our hearts that sense of longing of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Kings invites us to consider Israel's golden era from three vantage points. First, I would like us to consider the administration of the kingdom. You see that here in verses 1 to 9. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the happiness of the kingdom. We'll see that here in verses, I'm sorry, the the administration of the kingdom, verses 1 to 19. Then the happiness of the kingdom in verses 20 to 28. And finally, the wisdom of the king in verses 29 to 34. And so the rule or the administration of the kingdom, the happiness of the kingdom, and the wisdom of the king. This particular chapter begins by giving us a list of people that we might not be familiar with. Notably so, because most of these people don't occur outside of this particular chapter. I said just a few moments ago that this chapter is intended to kindle in our hearts to inculcate a sense of yearning, but I think for many of us, when we read this chapter, all it does is inculcate a sense of yawning. This laundry list of officials, most of whom Scripture tells us almost nothing. It's easy to zone out reading these names, especially on a Sunday night. Nearly half the men are not mentioned anywhere else, and the other half only a smattering of sentences here and there. What gives? Why is this chapter so important? 
So I'd like to pose a question to help orient our focus. So we ask ourselves this, how is it that Solomon ruled? That has been the concern of kings up until this point. It's rather interesting, I used to pastor a church just outside of Chicago, and there I had not one but several families that grew up under the Soviet regime. Uh, Russian families that immigrated to the United States over the past three or four decades that would tell me horror stories of what they had to endure under the Soviet empire. I think it's so easy to misread these chapters, particularly going back to chapter 2, as if Solomon is about to embark on a bloody purge. I remember uh, when I preached chapter 2 a few months ago, uh, somebody came up to me and says, what we're reading sounds something more like the Godfather than anything else. As if Solomon was, Solomon was attempting to consolidate power for himself, as if he was some type of bloodthirsty and cruel tyrant. We're reminded of the story in chapter 2 where Solomon had put to the sword the captain of the armies, the political dissidents, and even his own brother. How could you not walk away thinking, what kind of cruel king is this? Sounds less like a golden age and more, as I've just said, like the godfather. Until we remember that these men had marched under the banner of the serpent at Enrogel in chapter 1 who had taken counsel together against the Lord's anointed king, that man named and appointed by God himself to be heir to David's throne. Here before us stands a brief overview of Solomon's cabinet and with it the extent of his control. Note how the king here oversees every facet of his kingdom, be it the priesthood, the scribes, the recorders, the army, the governors, the king's counselor, the palace, the forced labor. Prior to this, even under David, Israel stood as little more than a loose tribal confederation. You were to read the opening books of the Bible, you would see that trying to lead the nation of Israel was something akin to herding a bunch of cats. But now Solomon brings order in ways up until now unseen. Every facet of the kingdom is brought under his rule as the government now rests upon his shoulders. Nearly half the men listed were David's officials. Think of Jehoshaphat, Zadok, Benaiah, Adoram, Abiathar. In other words, what this is telling us is that Solomon has not completely wiped out the previous administration as if this was you know, a, a precursor to Leon Trotsky. Solomon was not establishing a de novo regime. He was taking the best of the best under his father's administration, and yet was purifying that administration of those worthless men. You recall what happens at the end of chapter 1 is Abiathar, even the great mutineer against his own brother, Solomon shows mercy to him and says, if you prove yourself to be a worthy man, you will live. And yet Abiathar had taken advantage of the king's mercy and was therefore put to death. What we see then is that Solomon's reign is not a bloody coup. He's not simply out to wipe out the whole of the old order. No, what he does is he incorporates the best of the previous administration. He weeds out the worthless men and installs new men in their place. And if you notice, those men that he installs as replacements are men that come from priestly or prophetic families. Men who grew up under the ministry of the word. Men who knew how important it was to run a nation in accordance with the law of God. 
Eunice chapter 3 tells us that Solomon began to rule his kingdom in accordance with the charge given to him by his father David the king, but also in accordance with the law of Moses and the word of the prophets. We see here, even though Solomon has been declared by God himself to be the wisest man on earth, notice what Solomon does not do. Solomon does not tell everybody how wise he is, therefore he will not heed the counsel of anyone else. He actually appoints a counselor and a cabinet of men to advise him because he recognizes in his wisdom that he does not have all the answers. The friend of the king is... Uh, the, 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 the phrase, the term for the king's trusted advisor. In other words, David surrounds himself with men who knew the importance and centrality of the worship of God and its pertinence to the kingdom of God. And here in verses 7 to 19, the author focuses on one branch of Solomon's administration. Those officers, perhaps we can translate it another way, the governor's of the regions as he draws up these new districts within the bounds of his kingdom. You see that here in verses 7 to 19. Notice this, he appoints 12 district governors. Perhaps best to rewind a little bit as we remind ourselves what life looked like under uh, the, the leadership of previous uh, judges or rulers, or under shepherds prior to Solomon. As Israel enters the land of Canaan, it was more of a loose tribal confederation. You read Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you read Joshua, Judges. As I said a few moments ago, leading the nation of Israel was much like herding a bunch of cats. Consider what happens when Moses leads the people across the Jordan. What happens? Three distinct tribes say, oh, we don't really want to go in. We're content taking land on outside the bounds of what God has promised us, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, say, we want the lands east of the Jordan. There's lands north, so we're not, we're not going to go in. Moses goes, yes, you are. You can, you can have this land beyond the bounds, but not until you first join us in conquering the land that the Lord has promised to the whole of the people. Think of what happens when David becomes king, Second Samuel chapter 20, as soon as he becomes king. Shortly after, the ten northern tribes wanted to, want to secede right away. They don't want a king telling them what to do. Yet under Solomon, he consolidates power. Not in a cruel, bloodthirsty way, but in a way where he fulfills the duties of what the king of Israel ought to be doing for the kingdom. He, re- he restructures the government around the throne. To use a modern analogy, we could see this particular moment in Israel's history as something like that transition as the United States shifts from a government under the Articles of Confederation to that under the Constitution. So more, there's a centralizing feature that is transpiring here. And yet Solomon's actions are not tyrannical. This is what God has commanded. Israel's king was not to be a mere figurehead. Somebody who's simply supposed to give um, you know, a, a public radio address once a year. No, the purpose of the king was to rule. It was to administer. And here we see a king who is intimately involved in the affairs of his people. And so he establishes 12 districts. 
Notice that each district, once uh, one month a year, is responsible to provide for the provisions of the king and his household. Think of it as uh, an equivalent of some form of uh, like early agrarian tax system. As it goes on a rotation, everybody chips in, everybody plays their part. But just as important as Solomon's consolidation of power, we notice the emphasis on the conquest and administration of land. All of these strange, unfamiliar places like Beth Shan or Nephoth Dor. The letter sounded like something you'd read from Lord of the Rings. I think for those of us who are familiar with our Bibles, or even left scratching our heads at these place names. And yet nearly all of these place names listed here in this chapter occur in only one other place in Scripture. Joshua chapters 13 to 21. The Canaanite territories. You recall the story of Joshua. As Joshua takes the mantle, as he takes the reins of leadership after Moses' passing, and he leads the nation to conquer those territories that the Lord had given and promised to the people of God. So we find here that these territories have finally now been conquered to its fullest extent under Solomon. But now, having been conquered, these lands now need to be administered. You think of the story of Alexander the Great, it's his great failure. The man who conquered the whole known world in under a decade, all before the age of 33. Very clearly a man who cared nothing about its administration. You read these various stories of, you think of Plutarch's life of Alexander. Alexander goes from place to place going, hey, will you submit to me, yes or no? And they go, no. He goes, okay, and he burns the place to the ground, and he goes to the next city and says, hey, will you submit to me? And they go, yeah, sure. He goes, great, and he just moves on to the next city. All he's concerned with is conquest, but not administration. So as soon as Alexander the Great dies, his, his empire falls into shambles, erupts into a massive civil war of Four warring territories. Here we find that the Lord has promised two things to Israel, land and people. And the people are now as numerous as the sand of the sea. That's what the Lord tells us here in this passage, echoing and hearkening back to the promise he had given Abraham that your, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And now they have the bounds uh, this great tract of land, in fact, the bounds that are given here that stretch from the Euphrates to the, to the borders of Egypt, this is not simply some sliver of land in the Middle, of East, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, these bounds mark the territories of the extent of the land that the Lord had promised Abraham years earlier. And Solomon, having conquered all of the enemies of the people of God, now has to administer them. How are they going to be administered? Well, he installs governors to oversee its administration, all answering to him. Now Solomon has peace both without and within. Those opening chapters as he dealt with the threats within the kingdom, such as Abiathar and Joab and Shimei, but he also has peace from without as all the land of the Canaanites under Solomon have been conquered. We notice how wealthy and how uh, rich are his provisions. 
You compare the list here of the various amount of wheat and barley and the gazelle and the livestock and everything that, uh, that was given to the king, the, 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 this laundry list of food is on par with the same provisions that were given Pharaoh's household around the same time. In other words, we shouldn't be thinking of Israel as some type of minuscule microcosm in the greater you know, uh, plane of kind of Middle Eastern geopolitics. Under Solomon's reign, Israel is as powerful as Egypt, if not more. Remember in chapter 3, Pharaoh thought Israel to be such a threat that he gave Solomon his own daughter to establish and broker some form of peace treaty with him. Clearly, Pharaoh is shaking in his boots at the extent of Israel's reign. Under that of King Solomon... A new phase in salvation history has begun, and Israel's king sits in his exalted glory. If Samuel gives us a picture under David's reign of Christ in his humiliation, then surely under Solomon we're given a picture in minuscule of Christ in his exaltation and glory. Now the kingdom is at peace, but it still has to be governed and administered in wisdom. Leads us to our second point, the happiness of the kingdom here in verses 20 to 28, which make clear that Solomon's rule is no Jacobin reign of terror. No, here the people are happy. They eat, they drink, they are merry. Notice that the bounds and extent of Solomon's reign, verse 21, it's more than simply him ruling over Israel. It says he rules over what? All the nations, all the kingdoms, the peoples conquered, vassals bringing tribute, even those beyond the bounds pursue peace treaties with Solomon. We'll see that more in the coming chapters. In other words, Israel's king is not one to be trifled with, and as he reigns, he reigns for the good and safety of the inhabitants of the kingdom. According to 1 Chronicles 22.9, Solomon is the man of rest. He has achieved peace on every side. And in the ancient world, there's a particular expectation that one cannot build the temple to one's God until all of one's enemies have been defeated. Now Solomon has secured rest on every side. He has peace all around from without and within, and so the big project of constructing the temple become his central focus in the coming chapters. You see, this is why the place names in verses 7 to 19 are so important. The enemy has been defeated. Now Israel can enter into her promised rest, or so we hope. At the very least, now the temple can be built. Here is an era of dominion, peace, security. Consider the imagery, every man under his own vine and fig tree. Consider how that imagery resonates down through the ages. Even today, you read uh, George Washington's letters. Washington will evoke this type of imagery, of course, for the, the United States, not for the church. But here's a picture of peace. Remember Lord of the Rings as Frodo and Sam are uh, on their way to Mordor? The closer and closer they get to Mount Doom, what is it they find themselves talking about more and more? They just want to get back home to their garden. 
They just want rest. We find here this is not simply the rest and prosperity of the king at the expense of the subjects. No, every man under his own vine tree, vine and fig tree. It's not even restricted to the city of Jerusalem. Here, what Solomon has secured benefits every inhabitant of the kingdom. Every man has his own garden. Vine and the fig tree, symbols of provision of food and shade from the heat. Extending from Dan to Beersheba, the whole extent of the territory of Israel. It is comprehensive. It is a happiness that is true for the individual. You see that in verse 25, but it's also true for the army. Look at all those horses. I'll come back to the matter of the horses in later chapters. It's true of the king's family in verse 27, but note in verse 28, even all of the animals under Solomon are cared for. I mean, this is a clear, pristine picture of a golden age. Real peace under Israel's great king. The Lord had promised land and seed. Israel is reaping the benefits of both under the administration of a wise king. In fact, here is a king who's so wise that the nations flock to hearing this king. And so the Lord broadens his mind, quite literally the Lord broadens his heart to govern, not just Israel, but the nations. You see that here in our final point, verses 29 to 34. Notice how great Solomon's wisdom is characterized as. It's, it's characterized on par with the people of Israel itself. Even as Israel is as great as the sand on the seashore, so the Lord has broadened Solomon's heart, that his heart is as great as the sand on the sea. His wisdom is broad, it is deep, and it is wide. Greater than the Magi from the east, a wisdom greater than the sages of Egypt who were considered in those days to be the seat of all earthly wisdom and power. Here stands Solomon greater than even Judah's own sages, the sons of Mahal. Note the sheer breadth of his wisdom that is described here. Knowledge of trees, beasts, and produce. It is the knowledge of the created order. We'd seen in the previous chapter that Solomon has acted in accordance with the law of God and the word of the prophets and the counsel of his own father, the king. But here we find that Solomon not only knows God's word, here he also knows God's world in ways unsurpassed. And he's able to navigate both seamlessly in such a way that he could summarize divine wisdom using everyday agrarian and botanical imagery. The word here is Proverbs. Of course, we're familiar with the book of Proverbs that delineates Solomon's wisdom given not just for himself, but given to the people of God. But we find in the Greek Old Testament that Greek word for proverb is that of parable. And it reminds us of one greater than Solomon who also spoke in his wisdom. In parables, communicating the wisdom of the kingdom to those with ears to hear, appropriating botanical and agrarian image as well. See, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a sower who went out to sow seed, and so on. 
and so forth. It reminds us, for those with hearing hearts, that one greater than Solomon has, in fact, come. Solomon's reign was a golden age, but like the golden age of other cultures, this one also faded. In fact, it collapses rather quickly, as we will see in the coming chapters. The great tragedy, the rise and fall of Solomon in these opening chapters of Kings. Yet at the same time, this particular era becomes the paradigm for the prophets of articulating the great longing of the people of God for that unfading kingdom that is secured through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and consummated at his return. When we read First and Second Kings, so often we pinpoint it within that broader genre of, of Old Testament historical narrative, and that's perfectly fine. This book is a fully historical text. But the Hebrew ordering of the Bible is located in the books of the prophets, the former prophets. And it reminds us it's not simply the words of the prophets that are prophetic, but particular offices and events that depict for us the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, him who has come to receive that everlasting throne, that when he ascended on high, he has given good gifts to men, that he being given a kingdom, now governs and rules over it by his word and his spirit. As he has appointed office bearers in the church to tend to the particular needs of his people in both body and soul, be it the minister of the word or the elders who help govern and discipline that we might grow in godliness, or the deacons who care for us, reminding that the same God that we pray asking to forgive us Our daily sins is the same God that we pray, O Lord, please give us this day our daily bread. So great is God's love for his people that he has given his people a son, his only begotten son, that he might rule and reign in righteousness. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not an absentee king. He is no mere figurehead, but he is actively ruling and reigning over his people, even as we gather here on the Lord's day. This is the place, this is the time, this is the day where the Lord's people are are summoned to hear the words of our king as he governs us in all that we are to believe and all that we are to do, who reminds us of the great pardon of sin that is found through faith in him and him alone. It reminds us of the great king who has given himself, that we might taste and see that he is good. Here in this chapter, we're given a portrait of the messianic kingdom that has been inaugurated and begun through the ascension of Christ and will be consummated at his return. Think of the ways in which the prophets of old used the imagery of this chapter to depict Christ's own reign. Micah chapter 4 is but one example. In the latter days, all the nations shall flow to hear the Lord as he instructs us in the ways of wisdom. As he comes to bring justice to the nations, that every man, not just in Israel, but that every man may sit under his own vine and fig tree, that he might rest without fear, in peace and security, as the swords are beaten into plowshares. As we hear the law of our great king, Even as we heard this night saying, you shall not murder, we learn what it means to be citizens of the heavenly kingdom, what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, 
and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that day, Micah says, Micah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 2, all the nations will ascend, saying, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And when we make it to Hebrews 12, we find that that happens on the Lord's day. Because Zion is found here in the assembly of the saints on the Lord's day. It is here under the auspices of the the Spirit and the work of the Spirit that we are not brought back to Sinai. No, it's by the work of the Spirit we have come to ascend the heights of Zion itself. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord but Him with clean hands and a pure heart? Yet the great work of Christ as our great prophet, priest, and king has opened up that new and living way that we might draw near sinners though we are with boldness and confidence to find pardon for sin, grace to persevere in the midst of struggle, and to know that our God reigns. And this is that era when all of his enemies are being turned into his footstool, even if we have not yet seen it brought to completion. Here we have a picture of the messianic reign. Solomon's reign in his prime gives us a picture of Christ's reign and glory. It illustrates that day to which all of history is moving, and it ought to cause our hearts to burn within us. As Christ has been given a kingdom, that kingdom on earth is found in the church of the redeemed. Where everything that befalls us is so ordered for the happiness of the citizens of heaven. Not that all things that befall us are good, but here we have a God who is so good. He takes the great evil that befalls us in this estate of sin and misery and he so subverts it for our good and the glory of his son who is the true man of rest. The one who says to his people, come to me all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden and I will in fact give you rest. As we look forward to that day of rest that still awaits the people of God, that everlasting Sabbath. God has given his son power over all things but given in such a way that it tends to the salvation, nurture, and care of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Christ reigns as our presiding head, what we have is not a loose tribal configuration where people are left to do what is right in their own eyes, but a kingdom that has been constituted around a king, a king with a government, a government with laws, a government with office bearers who are given for your sake. That we might continue on the highway to holiness as we make our way as pilgrims and strangers seeking that everlasting celestial city, that city with more certain foundations than any kingdom here on earth could ever hope to have. A kingdom that is comprised of people from every nation. As the nations flock to hear him, and here is the king who in his mercy gives wisdom from on high and tells us the path to life, the only path that is found to life, that is found through faith in him and him alone. Here we get to enjoy the first fruits of his victory. Here too, we can eat, drink, and be happy. But it is a happiness of another sort where the food that Christ gives is not simply one of meat and drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy, that we might be able to taste what real safety and security looks like. Where even the bread and the wine are signs of the pardon of sin, and the reconciliation of man to God and to one another. So that when we read of Solomon, it should point us to the one who is greater 
than even him. And should ignite in our hearts a longing for that golden age that is still to come. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your word. We pray that you would help us to set our sights on Christ, who is indeed the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. That we would have a longing to put to death those sins that continue to afflict and torment us, that we might give you the due honor that is due your name. Strengthen us, we pray, for the days ahead. They may be evil, but you are holy and good. Be our refuge, our shepherd, and our king, our mighty fortress, that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we would fear no evil, for you are with us. Comfort us, we pray, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.